the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we're talking about the business of sport and I'm joined in studio as always by my co-host Michael O'Keefe of Teneo PSG. Michael, welcome back. Thank you very much, Kieran. And we're going to begin with our business of sports wrap and we're going to be talking about sponsorships and broadcast right deals. And uh, just on Monday, AIB and the GAA announced an extension of their mm-hmm. long-running partnership. Tell us about that. Yeah, so it, look, it's been a bumper month, I think, um, for the world of sponsorship in this country, which is a relatively small market, obviously, mm. in, in, in global terms. But, you know, I, I think what we're seeing is a, a, a buoyant sponsorship industry over 200 million up 10% year on year and I think it's a reflection of of a diversion of, of, of marketing spend in, in, into sponsorship. And a reflection of the upturn in the economy I guess as well. I, I, absolutely and I think it's it's an all boats uh, picture as well like obviously the you know this is a year when a lot of money may have gone into to soccer as we'll hear later on in terms of diverting into you know a, a, a FIFA World Cup but um, GA rugby uh, athletics uh, you know there's renewals across all these different sports golf which we'll touch on later as well um, and as you rightly said AIB uh, only this week announced an extension of their sponsorship which has been a very long running sponsorship since the early 90s um, in various guises and they've extended for another five years which is a kind of a two for one um, because they're a big uh, sponsor of the football championship and also the All Ireland Club hurling and football championship and Camogie. Yeah. Um, so like a, a, a big one for the GA renewal to keep those kind of blue chip brands on on board. And interesting as well that Lidl have extended their deal, haven't they, with the Ladies Gaelic Football Association? And I think the Lidl sponsorship has been quite innovative. I I, I think it's been transformational, and I, I think it's been one of the best sponsorships um, we've seen. And and you know it's won a European awards for its innovation. And and I think um, the interesting thing here about Lidl is the investment number that's spoken about so it's a unique sponsorship in that the the rights fee so the fee that they actually pay to sponsor the tournaments that they sponsor in the association they spend something like seven or eight times promoting it so they actually invest in the sport so they've gone in and and taken a big punt on, on ladies football um, which would be an unusual ratio normally you talk about one to one or two to one mm. Let's just explain that so for <clears throat> For every euro that's spent on the actual title sponsorship, uh, Lidl are putting, in addition to that, another seven or eight euro behind uh, marketing activity. Uh, that, that, that's that's what's been reported, and that that would be in in things like the TV advertising, the the outdoor, the staff engagement, what they do with the with the funds. They have a, okay. a fund that they give out to the clubs on the ground. So it it's it would be a very unusual ratio, and it just shows you, I suppose, how unique that sponsorship is, and how big a play, and how transformational it's been for ladies football and and for Lidl, in fact. Yeah, and let's say the GEA. This is uh, one that uh, I think your fingerprints might be on in some ways. Uh, AIG renewing their sponsorship with the Dublin GEA. Yeah, and again in 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 line with the deal that was that was done before. Um, it's a five year extension. Um, you know, it's, how much, Mick? Well, it's as reported in the Irish Times, uh, close enough to that, Kieran. I think um, that was about four million <laughs> listeners. So, so um, but uh, it's uh, it's 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 a it's a big, I think, um, signal of intent by AIG in this market. I also think um, both the Dublin GA and the GA to attract sponsors like AIG, who are now investing in Dublin for for ten years. I think it's I think it's a huge. Uh, vote of confidence yeah, to, just for the to, benefit to of the listeners obviously AIG a big American insurance uh, company it's been active in the Irish market for many many years but mostly on the business side now it's very much in the consumer yeah, and, and I well. and I think from a, a business strategy perspective AIG um, you know using this sponsorship as a way to, to raise renters going to a more consumer facing insurance organisation and um, 
you know, I, I, I think what has what has really appealed with this sponsorship is it's taken in ladies football and camogie and not just the male the male codes, which I think is a is is a noble thing to do. But I, I think when you see the success of the Dublin ladies team and yeah. the huge following they now but have, I think was quite. There is this age old argument, Mick, about uh, the, the amount of money that Dublin GA has available to us uh, to it. This sponsorship is unquestionably the biggest sponsorship uh, yeah. in GA at yeah. the minute. What Cork is next? I think yeah, Chillen's probably double, a couple yeah, of hundred grand yeah, a, yeah, a year yeah. or thereabouts. Um, is there too much money being pumped into Dublin GA to the detriment of the rest of the country? You see, I, I, I think when you know, like the, the GA isn't a, a communist society where you know, like you, you have in Dublin, one point five million people. You have to support ninety coaches, up to a hundred clubs, a massive playing population, and and. I think the Dublin success in football has clouded the, the wider argument around promotion of sport and promotion of Gaelic games in the capital. You, you cannot have a situation where people talk about Leitrim and they've 30,000 people and a sponsorship of 25 grand versus Dublin with one point whatever million it is in sponsorship and, and on other other funding that they get. But I think if you take that away, you you lose the city and I think there's so much competition within the city for, for sport. I think you have to invest. I think what might happen is the GA may move slowly to a more central model of, of sponsorship for certain things like kit, certain things like like nutrition and water and stuff like that, where they can spread the money a little bit more evenly around the other counties. But, you know, you look at sport in, in Spain, France, the big city clubs have the biggest fan bases, have the biggest playing populations, have the biggest sponsorship deals. Um, and yes, the GA is unique in that it's an amateur organisation. But, you know, um, you know, y- 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 if, if, mm. if Dublin don't have this this large war chest, they can't support the growth of yes. four sports in a very big population. And of course, if you're a Dublin hurling fan, you might be wondering what all the fuss is about because uh, the Dublin hurlers uh, aren't exactly at the top table uh, at the minute. Let's switch to soccer now and uh, Champions League broadcast rights and uh, TV3 pulling off something of a coup, getting the main rights uh, away from RTE. Yeah, so the, this is the the switch from Tuesday to to Wednesday, um, which you know would be a the more prestigious night uh, would be perceived as being the more prestigious night. Um, TV three going big on big on sport, um, and they've got Europa League rights as well, so they're going to have over three hundred games a year available to them. Yeah, and and it's a big play, and it's it, it's another and it's the a, finals, the finals are the key, and and the finals. However, I think what was lost in translation a little bit is that. Um, uh, Air Sport will also uh, through the BT uh, do the Europa League on a Thursday too so it's not exclusive but the Wednesday is um, and I think it's a massive boost for them in terms of their um, their uh, broadcast of, of, of sport rights and I think you know the, the GA has, has been held more or less by, by RTE but it's a it's a very difficult market for RTE to operate in when you've got so many big operators around and then you've got the the new trend as as you know in terms of the likes of Amazon, Facebook, Google as well snapping around looking for rights too. So it's a it's a difficult market for a domestic broadcaster which is state owned to, to compete in. Sure, we'll switch to golf now. Uh, Michael, you've got some family connections in Lynch. I do. And the Irish Open is heading there. Tell us about that. Yeah, and, and this this is a I, I think the the wider picture here is around um the structure of of the Irish Open going forward. So what, what you know, it's had its troubles over the years. The Irish Open, it actually didn't didn't happen for a while. Um, but I think it's really important that Ireland, as a as a as one of our top golf nations in the world, has a superb Open that's well funded and well supported. And I think it's amazing and it's great to see that the the likes of Gray McDowell, uh, Clark Harrington, McGinley. And McElroy will all take turns hosting, which gives mm. the the competition prestige and, and enables them to attract players sure. to play. I should say, I, I think it's always been host. It's always been host, but not necessarily with a sponsor. 
you know, it, I, 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 I think there, was, there were years, if I'm not mistaken, where it didn't happen. But, you know, there has been times where they've been sponsorless, where they haven't attracted the right talent, where it's kind of been a bit of a poor cousin on the tour. Um, but now, as you can see, it's one of the Rolex series because the prize money is is so significant. Um, there was a view that, that it would, because it's part funded by the both tour sports, north and south of the border, that it will go year in, year up, year down. But actually, I think it's going to go two, three years south of Ireland, one year north. So the view would be that La Hinch, which is a fantastic uh, Lynx course on the west of Ireland, which is where why Americans travel to Ireland is to play courses like La Hinch, will host for the first time, which I mm-hmm. thought was interesting. And it'll be hosted by Paul McGinley. And hopefully we'll have him in during the summer to, to, to talk about that. Next year, the view is that it'll be a Portrick Harrington hosted event, possibly around Dublin somewhere. Yeah. Um, and then it might travel back up north again. Now, Donald Trump must be really excited by this because, of course, he owns the Doombeg uh, course and hotel and resort which is only down the road from Lynch so there's definitely going to be a spin-off for him Oh no, absolutely and I think you know for hotel facility wise I think um, Doombeg was one of the prime locations it's a beautiful course as well um, and I think this is a sign of Irish golf been on the up again we've 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 always had beautiful courses and great players you look at a Dare Manor now uh, a lot of private money going into a Dare Manor a big play for the Ryder Cup the view is that Ireland will have a very strong bid for the 2026 Ryder Cup there's even a view that if the Italian bid, uh, sorry, the, the Italian host uh, club kind of get its act together in time that we might actually get the Ryder Cup in 2022, which would be amazing. Yeah. And Harrington, of course, has gone in as vice captain of the, one of the vice captains of the European Ryder Cup team this year. Sure. Now, a very interesting legal ruling in the US recently, and this might take some people by surprise, but a federal court has decided um, to set aside legislation, a ban, a prohibition, if you like, on legal sports betting in the United States. And I say it's probably coming as a surprise because a lot of people probably think in the same way as in Ireland and the UK, you have uh, high street bookmakers and the ability to bet in all sorts of uh, sports. That's not actually the case in, in most of the United States. Yeah, and there's, there's there's only a couple of states within the US where you can actually gamble. Um, it tends to be in stadia or, or, or in casino. Um, on course. Yeah. On course, exactly, sorry. Um, and there's only, as I said, there's Delaware, Montana, uh, Oregon, Nevada, obviously the home of Las Vegas, why so many sports events take place in there's Las Vegas. There's something like $150 billion every year bet illegally. Yeah, and I and, and I think the, the, the advent of online um, and mobile betting makes it even more difficult to police. And I'd say that could even be conservative as a as a as a mm. as a number. Um there's been high profile cases where certain CEOs of large gambling firms have been arrested in the States um because uh, it's it you know they've there's been operations happening within within the organization. I think this is one to watch. I think what will be really interesting is what happens with New Jersey um, Atlantic City will that see a resurgence in terms of a, a venue as a, it's only down the road from New York um, and that's one and it was interesting to see as well the bounce that some of the big bookies uh, Paddy Power uh, Paddy Power who, who got uh, 5-6% um, bumps on, on share prices as well on, on the back of this news so I don't think um, and I could be wrong I don't think we're going to see on street uh, bookmakers like we have here I think what this will be is more in stadia on course um, online, online, exactly. Legalized uh, online, online betting because it's similar to prohibition. All the 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 rules did and regulations did is, is drove it underground. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll leave it there. Uh, thanks for that wrap up, um, Michael. Very good as usual. Uh, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be looking forward to the kickoff of the FIFA World Cup in Russia. Back in a few moments. Only twenty nine percent of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. 
Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. We're talking about the business of sport this week, and I'm joined in studio by co-host Michael O'Keefe. And we're going to be looking now at the FIFA World Cup, which kicks off next month in Russia. Now, it's a little over two weeks until the opening game of the FIFA World Cup in Russia, with the tournament set to generate billions of euros uh, from sponsorship broadcast rights, ticketing and hospitality, as well as benefiting the local economy. Sadly, Ireland won't be there, but there is sure to be plenty of exciting football to enjoy. And marketing strategist Patrick Nally is widely known as the man that resurrected the FIFA World Cup commercially. He turned it into a multi-million dollar event uh, that it is today. Patrick also brokered the deal between FIFA and Coca-Cola for the drinks giant to sponsor the World Cup, a partnership that has lasted nearly 40 years. And I'm delighted to say that Patrick joins us on the line now. Patrick, you're very welcome to Inside Business. Thank you very much. Just tell us a little bit about the commercial history of the World Cup and how much this tournament in Russia is going to be worth to FIFA. Well, just to go back in the history books, it all started back in 1978 at the World Cup in Argentina 40 years ago when FIFA didn't really have any control of its own rights. I had just signed a major sponsorship agreement between FIFA and Coca-Cola for their development program, developing football into Asia and Africa, and I wanted to protect their interests for the World Cup in 78. FIFA didn't control rights because they were all left to the organizing committee, so I had to negotiate then with the military junta in Argentina to bring all the rights under central control. I managed to package it very effectively for the Coca-Cola company and brought in some other corporate sponsors, and it worked extremely well and helped what was then almost a bankrupt FIFA become obviously quite financially secure. That led on then to Spain in 82 when they took the event from 16 teams to 24 teams and they required obviously a lot more money because of the whole change in the structure. And that's when I created what we then called Inter Soccer. And that was a package of rights over a four-year program culminating with the World Cup where I created this opportunity for a very limited number of companies, eight in total, all of whom that will be exclusive in their own uh, rights uh, area, but also exclusive because there would only be eight companies involved with the World Cup. And needless to say, it proved to be extremely successful in 82 in Spain, and it's rolled on through 86 Mexico, 1990 into Italy, into the US, and it's been the whole cornerstone of the substantial commercial revenues that FIFA have enjoyed ever since. Mm. So what will this uh, tournament be worth to FIFA? Roughly currently, speaking. currently the, the packaging, although there's obviously some glitches in it now, is valued around about $2.5 billion over a four-year period. Okay, and there have been uh, question marks over the appetite of some sponsors for this World Cup, I guess because probably because FIFA has been involved in some controversy and obviously it's been hosted in Russia, which is something of a, a pariah state uh, for the West at the minute. I think the hosting in Russia is not an issue. I think World Cup can be moved around and could be basically hosted anywhere. I think the problem that has happened, of course, is that the FIFA brand has become completely toxic with all the um, New York uh, legal cases, all the corruption issues that went on for many years. Uh, the FIFA brand that we built up to being something of you know, great attraction has become a bit of a pariah. And that obviously the top brands, the whole concept was to have high quality brands working together, supporting each other, promoting together. And of course, all that's fallen away because as the more and more of the quality brands have moved away from FIFA, less companies of that ilk want to join FIFA. And they're being replaced more by political 
um, clients like Qatar Airways, obviously Gazprom because of Russia and the Chinese companies that are obviously keen to try and get World Cup to China. And of course, that whole ethos of this great branding image and companies, you know, really, really enjoying that relationship has declined. And now they're struggling to find people to replace the companies as they start stepping away from what's a very unfortunate brand. Yeah, and, and I suppose that that analysis Patrick would probably point to to FIFA rather than Russia, but there is a, a narrative out there that Russia and Qatar as host nations has has scared away some of those blue chip organisations rather than FIFA itself. So I don't know what your view is on that. I you know I think you, you you've said there Argentina seventy eight was obviously under military regime, Mexico eighty six. There would have been certain issues around that host nation too, but there are very clear. Um, fingers pointing at people do not want to be associated with, say, Putin's Russia, so to speak. Would you would you have a view on that? Well, I think what what has happened is that the whole trust has just gone out of what you know was a great organisation, and the whole sort of furore over the selection of Russia and the selection of Qatar is all part of this wearing away at the FIFA image. You know, so that combined with the corruption. It's just that everybody you mention, they name FIFA or you say you've been associated with FIFA. You know, there's a gasp of breath because people just don't trust it as an organization. They don't believe in it, that it's being sort of transparent. So all of these elements have combined to make it a very toxic brand. And clearly, from my point of view, obviously, it's very disappointing having been the architect of putting this you know, amazing package together that's generated billions for FIFA over the years. It's really sad. And, and, and I think at the end of the day, there needs to be a total rebranding. The whole thing needs to be sort of you know, started afresh. The whole look of it needs to be perhaps even the name needs to be changed because you know it's clearly on the decline. We've got very, very few local sponsors because of it now being in Russia because it's not a, that attractive a market, as you say. So really, um, I think FIFA are facing some troubled times ahead if they don't really get to grips with the need to change their whole image and approach. Yeah, and it's something that will come to later in terms of some of the future models that you've suggested and other people have suggested. Can you explain to listeners, though, how FIFA currently goes about selling um, broadcast rights and how it currently goes about selling sponsorship at the moment? Is it done through third parties? Is it done through... Um, uh, direct or, or what, what might be the best approach? Well, FIFA for quite a few years was uh, putting all of their commercial rights and broadcasting through an organization called ISL, which I won't make any comments about as I didn't really like them. But once that entity went bankrupt, all of the marketing and all of the commercial rights were brought back into FIFA and were operated by FIFA. Broadcast is still very, very successful for them because broadcasters are very keen and interested in the World Cup. You can negotiate good agreements on a nation-by-nation or region-by-region area to which FIFA are capable of doing themselves. There are some territories to where agents would get involved. Clearly, through Japan, they still work with the Dentsu, the big Japanese agency. In South America, they probably still work in some territories through agents. But predominantly, FIFA are capable of negotiating all of their broadcast rights themselves. And that has grown and continues to grow because, obviously, you know, broadcasters are very, very keen to access those rights on an exclusive basis. So from a broadcast point of view, there isn't any significant issue that I can see at the moment, other than, obviously, they're having to adapt because 
digital technology means there's a whole change in the face of broadcasting. But no, that side is fine. The sponsorship side, of course, is the area that I think is really very much on the decline and the one that if they don't change their approach. But again, all of those sales have been through FIFA, FIFA Direct and all new sponsors have been negotiated through FIFA Direct. And then when it comes to the ticketing, the ticketing they do through a company called Match, which is whole ticketing and hospitality, which is a group that's been working with them since Mexico in 1986 and have had that contract renewed continuously. Um, and that is obviously an agent that packages and manages that all on FIFA's behalf. Lovely. And just and when turning to the, to the host nation itself, um, what attracts big countries like Russia and others to, to, to bid for these big sporting um, global events and, and I suppose what's in it for them, particularly when you look at what happened in South Africa and some of the debt issues that have, that have come um, uh, and then you look, at, you look at Brazil as well and you look at some of the issues that have happened after that. So I suppose the, the question is, what's, what's in it for the host nation? It's, it's all about ego. It's all about prestige. It's about um, governments that want to portray themselves onto the global stage. You look at Beijing, you know, strange to be hosting a Winter Olympics, but they're prepared to invest millions and millions to create, you know, a winter resort that is capable of hosting Olympics. Um, so China, Russia, Qatar, even Brazil back then, you know, it, it's all about the government of that time or the leaders of that time seeing that the global um, image and prestige that these events will create. And of course, many of them fail to realize that they might be building and investing in substantial white elephants that you know are not going to be that attractive legacy. So again, I think both with World Cup talking about the future and even with the Olympics, with new technology and new ways of you know, presenting things, maybe FIFA should be changing and not looking for quite such large host nations uh, because technology means that you can bring live events into people's individual stadiums around the world through hologram techniques. So, you know, having the prestige of these big events, I think, are beginning to sort of wane as more and more nations see that they don't leave the legacies that they seek. Patrick, Gianni Infantino, who's the current uh, FIFA president, he has suggested because the Soccer World Cup on a four-yearly basis is such a large portion of FIFA's uh, revenues, he suggested diversifying by creating a, a Club World Cup tournament and a Nations League. And it's been suggested that something like $25 billion might be raised in the first 12 years of these tournaments. Uh, but it's backed by some mystery investors and he hasn't revealed who the so-called investors are who are willing to buy into this project to the other members of FIFA and his plans seem to have gone somewhat awry. I think he's backed down from it um, for the time being at, at least. What do you think of that plan to sort of diversify FIFA's revenues away from the World Cup? I think it's probably more a fear factor because he's realizing that the World Cup and the revenues that they have been generating is declining for all the reasons that we've already discussed. The World Club's Cup isn't a new concept. We started working with FIFA on the concept of a World Club's Cup back in the 80s. We were building it out of the Toyota Cup, and obviously it was an event that was being hosted in Japan. Um, and so the big issue that we face with the World Club's Cup is that FIFA really shouldn't be dealing at the club level. The clubs and the leagues 
are really a matter to the national federations and the national league structures that exist in those countries. So FIFA trying to now magnify this club's cup, which has always had its issues for the reasons I've mentioned, is a bit of a misnomer because it's rather than putting themselves in a position to fight um, national federations because there's too much political control with the clubs. It's fighting with leagues. It's fighting with its own confederation uh, within UEFA that wants to protect its own European Champions League and other things. So I think it's very dangerous for him to try and use that aspect as a way of resolving his financial concerns because he's going to bring himself into conflict with so many other factors of the sport and FIFA should concentrate on its relationship with nations. It's all about nations, not about clubs. That's an entirely different structure. To then try and build another big nations event on it, obviously with the calendar, with the pressure on players as it is at the moment, with the amount of money you know, being spent on players back to clubs, I think he tends to be looking for whatever way he can to boost up the financial income, where really, if he did something like change the brand, I think he could probably rebuild what he has and get back to enjoying the levels of revenue and the increase in revenues that he's been having over all these past years. And just on that, because, you know, when you look at it, you know, from a macro level, since 1978, more or less the same structure has been in place. Okay, there's been tweaks and so forth, but what might be the best structure going forward and bearing in mind in 2014 close to 5 billion was generated out of the World Cup so it's still a beast when it, in sports marketing terms but what do you think if you were forward looking and if you were sitting in, in, in that office what would you think would be the best structure for the World Cup? Well, the, 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 whole, the whole world has changed since we started this approach and of course you have to keep reinventing yourself if you want to stay relevant. And of course, both with sponsors and broadcast, the relevance to why they invest so much money to acquire rights in the first place is because it wants to access the audience. It wants to access the fans. So really, it's the fans World Cup and it's the fans to where the revenue ultimately is generated from, whether it's through the sponsors or broadcasters, it's still the fans buying products or you know looking at ads that, that, that make it. Because of the digital way, because of ICO and Bitcoin and because of the digital ability through mobile, mobile activity, the fact, as I said, on broadcasting that you can have holograms and bring live events into your own stadia in your own country, I think now is the time to have a completely clean view, get rid of this old program that I created all those years ago and start something that accesses and mobilizes the global fan base and have that global fan base all being contributing to what is their event, their world event, both in terms of qualifications as well as the World Cup itself, and, and use the whole digital structure, coin structure, revenue structures to which the broadcasters can embrace and the sponsors can embrace because we're all after getting the access to that audience. It's now time for a completely radical approach and to use the modern you know, systems that are now available to actually get access to the fans themselves. And yet, Patrick, uh, in spite of what you say, uh, next month there's going to be a vote on the host uh, for the 2026 World Cup, eight years down the road. And it's a it's basically a face off between Morocco on the one side and a joint bid between the USA, Canada and Mexico on the other. Yeah, which is sad, isn't it? Uh, what may be surprising, though, is that once upon a time, everybody would have written Morocco off as just a no chance whatsoever. 
We've got to chase the money. You know, North America talking about these millions and billions that they can raise for their event, which is ridiculous because they're talking about more broadcast money, but the broadcast money is the same. They're talking about more sponsorship, but how do you get more sponsorship on top of what's already there? It's all again, unfortunately, the bid is all about money, money, money uh, for North America. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody said enough is enough, let's go to Morocco, let's make Morocco really an exciting, wonderful, more natural World Cup in a more natural football environment at a time zone that is better and do a lot of these things that I'm saying. Use it as a way to get to the fans, change the approach, use digital media and digital opportunities. So. You know, this is the point. They cannot keep going on the same way they've been going because eventually the golden goose will disappear. And just finally for me, Patrick, just, to, you know, what kind of World Cup can we expect in a couple of weeks' time? And I suppose, despite everything you've said, are you, are you looking forward to it? Yeah, you see, the, the amazing thing is um, I was absolutely captivated, uh, obviously working on my first ever World Cup as quite a young man in '78. And it is an absolutely magic, amazing event. Forget FIFA, forget the politics, forget all the nonsense that goes on, forget all the corruption and everything else. You know, when you start seeing the caliber of some of those teams and some of those players, probably not until it gets to like the, you know, the last 16, because I'm still a great believer that more is less is more, sorry, in that I still believe it, 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 the creme de la creme, that when you start seeing the calibre of some of these teams and these players, it just takes your breath away. You know, it is taking something from United. It's the theatre of dreams. It's, it's, it's magic. I just love it. And Patrick, will you be there? On this occasion, I think I've decided because I have a son getting married, which um, is also attracted to me. I think this is going to be the first World Cup since 1978 that I don't think I'm going to actually attend. But that's not to say I won't change my mind depending on who gets through to the final. (laughs) All right. Patrick Nally, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Now, we've had the lowdown on the World Cup from a business perspective, but what about a view on the ground in Russia? Mark Bennett is a Moscow-based journalist who has written for The Times in the UK, The Guardian, The Sunday Telegraph, Newsweek and Politico. He's also authored several books with a Russian focus. Uh, Mark, uh, you're very welcome to Inside Business. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on at the minute. Preparations must be uh, very advanced. It's uh, kicking off in a couple of weeks, obviously. Is there a sense of excitement building in Russia? Um, Yeah, I think building is is the right word because... I mean, initially, people didn't seem that bothered about it, really. Um, football doesn't really have the greatest image in Russia, so most people were just kind of fairly indifferent to it if, or actively against it because um, most people in Russia tend to think as football was a sport exclusively for kind of like drunken hooligans. There hasn't really been that kind of like um, middle-class intellectualization of the, of the sport that there has been in, say, like um, Britain and Ireland, for example. Uh, but now, as it's becoming closer, I think, yeah, people are intrigued by it and excited by the fact that there's going to be so many foreign fans coming. And it's a, it's a major sporting event. I think Russians are kind of proud that their country is going to host the tournament. So it, it's it's estimated that 500,000 people are going to visit Russia for the World Cup. Um, just interesting to get a sense from yourself in terms of hotels. Are they ready? Um, and how, how infrastructure is, is in place to, to accommodate that many people? And what kind of boost the local economy might get out of this World Cup? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question because the Russian government says it, it's hopes anyway that the World Cup will boost the economy by around $30 billion um, through tourists and uh, the creation of, of, of jobs. Um, they've obviously spent a hell of a lot on the World Cup 
uh, they said they spent 11 billion getting everything ready. That's including, uh, but that's not including stadiums, which they've revamped. Uh, one of the stadiums they've built, especially for the World Cup in St. Petersburg, is um, reported to be the world's most expensive stadium, more expensive than Wembley at a cost of $1.5 billion. Uh, and right now it seems to be okay, but when it, when it opened, there were lots of complaints about there was rain coming in through, through the roof and things and there were holes all over the place, but uh, they seem to have patched the holes up now and it seems ready for the World Cup. As far as inf infrastructure, um, I mean, getting across the country is not going to be a problem if it's all about transport infrastructure, because Russia has, you know, I would say, probably some of the greatest trains in the world, probably the greatest rail, rail service in the world. I mean, you don't have trains being stopped by snow. I mean, it's no problem, for example, to travel from Moscow, the deepest Siberia on a train in the middle of winter. Uh, of course, uh, the football fans coming to Russia won't be doing that. Um, but... I mean, even trips, for example, from St. Petersburg in the north of Russia to Volgograd in the south, which would take around 28 hours, I think. Uh, they're, they're, they're fairly smooth trips, you know, and the trains run to the minute. I mean, if the train says it's going to arrive at 7.22 the next morning, it will arrive at 7.22 the next morning. Mark, there are concerns over hooliganism uh, because obviously there were some incidents in um, the Euro 2016 tournament when Russian and England fans were, were rioting in Marseille. Um, is there genuine reason for alarm or, or do you think that'll be a problem at the tournament? I think perhaps there are lots of Russian and British football hooligans who would, who would enjoy fighting each other at the World Cup. But whether or not they'll be allowed to is, is another issue. I mean, um, the World Cup is very important for Russia, as it is for any country as a kind of showcase event for, I mean, in this case, for what Putin sees as Russia's kind of resurgence, you know, political, economic, social, even religious sense, under, under his long rule. Uh, and so, uh, with the tournament being so significant for Putin, this Russian security services have cracked down quite harshly on known hooligans. There's, there's a huge blacklist of hooligans who won't be allowed into games. Um, of known hooligans who won't be allowed into games. Uh, and sources have told me and other journalists that um, the FSB, which is the successor security agency to the KGB, has um, basically been telling telling known hooligans that if they make any trouble during the World Cup, then they'll be jailed on kind of old charges or just trumped up charges for a long time. Uh, with the result that many of these football hooligans have actually booked foreign holidays for the duration of the World Cup so that they can prove that they weren't in the country if anything does happen, so they can just show their passport and say, that, hey, I was in Turkey, or whatever, you know. Uh, so, I mean, I think you'd have to be a very foolhardy football fan, football hooligan, sorry, to try and start any trouble and ruin Putin's party, as it were. Because, I mean, while some pro-Kremlin politicians were quite happy to see Russian um, hooligans, thugs, running around France, kicking people's heads in. They won't want the same to happen in, in Moscow or in any other Russian city because it's, it's a, as I said, it's a, it's a showcase for Russia and that's not the image they want to present to the world. And just just on the, the, the showcase for, for Russia and the perception that this is a big prestige play and, and, and the image of Russia under Vladimir Putin, um, that this could be a massive injection of, of, of propaganda. What's the view over there or what's your own view in terms of what this World Cup might do for his standing as a as a as a global leader. Well, I think his um his aims have shifted quite significantly because I think when Russia got the World Cup, um, this was before crime uh, before the Kremlin had uh, annexed Crimea. 
This was before Syria. Um, this was before, obviously, a lot of kind of other um, international scandals that have, ha that have happened with Kremlin's involvement. Um, and so, at the time, Russia wasn't kind of the international outcast that it is now. And so I think back then, Putin was seeing the World Cup as a kind of, kind of like, um, perhaps almost like a coming out party for a new, wealthy, successful, powerful, confident nation. Uh, I don't think anyone in Russia thinks that even by holding the world's best ever World Cup now, that they're going to change too many minds or too many opinions in the West about Russia. Um, so I think that the best they can hope for is, and what, what they are hoping for, is to, to prove that Russia can organize like an event on such a massive scale. Um, and of course, when we talk about international opinion, that's really basically the West, you know, I mean, they're also looking at Asia, Africa, Latin America as well, you know, so where perhaps attitudes towards Russia aren't, aren't quite so harsh. But as far as the West goes, I don't think Putin's hoping to make any friends with the World Cup. And finally, Mark, how are the locals feeling about the chances of the Russian uh, team? How's the form? Uh, how far might they go in the tournament? Um, well, the Russian team is one of the lowest ranked sides at the, at, at the World Cup. And so no one is particularly optimistic that they're going to win it. I mean, no, even, even I think even the most fervent Russian football fan thinks that Russia is going to lift the World Cup. I mean, the joke is, like, who are you going to support after Russia gets knocked out? Um, so, I mean, Russia hasn't, Russia hasn't got out of the group stages at the World Cup since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it's only at once got out of the group stages at, Europe, at the Euros. So, I mean, the odds aren't looking very good. Uh, I mean, when the draw was made, lots of people were saying, ah, Russia has the easiest group. But, I mean, they have Uruguay, who are a good team. They have Egypt, who have Salah, Mohammed Salah. If he, well, perhaps, if he, perhaps. If he makes we'll, it, yeah. We'll wait and see. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And they have Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, it's quite feasible they could come third in that group, and that, that would be the end of it. And having spent, with the Kremlin, having spent $19 billion on preparations for the tournament, uh, Russia gets like three three points. What's that? It's like $6 billion a point. And I think the Russian public will be particularly pleased by it. Yeah, that would so, be a great return. Yeah, yeah. So, I, mean, I think it depends to an extent on. on on how well they do, but like I said, no one's here is particularly very optimistic that they're going to do well. Okay, Mark, we'll leave it there. Thank you for joining us. Okay, Mick, well, you've heard from Patrick, you've heard from Mark. What's your view on this upcoming World Cup? I, I can't wait. I, I think it's going to be a fantastic World Cup. I think it's going to be, I think nowadays, I think it's going to, uh, more and more teams probably fancy their chances the way the, the seasons end. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It's a pity so? we aren't there. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you think is going to win? Um... At this remove, it's hard to see by by like so the the Germanys and the Spains, mm. um, Argentina outside bet. You'd like to think that somebody will come like Wales and Iceland did in the last Euros. Well, of course, uh, Iceland are there. I, I Iceland this time around the smallest country ever to participate. Iceland are there. People keep saying Belgium are the surprise package. I've been saying that for the last six years. So uh, it's it's difficult to know. I, I I hope there's a romantic story. I hope somebody gets to a semi final or final. England have a chance too. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's it for this week from Inside Business. <laughs> My thanks to Patrick Nally and Mark Bennett. Uh, Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as a sound engineer and Dan O'Neill of Teneo PS3 on research. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed every day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. And I'm Mike O'Keefe. Until next time, take care.